Psalm 77. Probably not the scripture you were anticipating. With its raw emotional content and bold language, is it really the passage to frame our new year? Maybe you expected something lighthearted and cheerful and something maybe obviously encouraging. Well, if you wanted someone to help you figure out how to follow through on your New Year's resolutions, you came to the wrong church. I hope to give you something far better than a list of unmanageable expectations with which you will try to overhaul your life yet again. I hope to give you a sturdy framework for this next year. And I can only do that if I am real, like Asaph, the writer of Psalm 77, is real. I'm going to address the messy side of life and faith, the one we don't often talk about from up here. Today we'll be looking at the issue of suffering, whether that comes in the form of pain, loss, disappointment, physical suffering, spiritual suffering, relational suffering, whatever it is, that's what we're talking about. Now, as a precursor, I will not answer the big question about suffering. Why is there suffering if God is good? After all, theologians have been debating that one for, you know, hundreds of years, and I only have a half an hour, and I'm only 31, so I don't think I have the answer for you. Instead, I'm going to talk about what I know and what I've learned about living and believing in the midst of suffering. This morning, we're going to do three things. First, we are going to acknowledge that suffering is real. Then we're going to turn to the biblical witness and see what God's response to suffering is. And finally, we're going to discuss what the Bible shows us that we can and should do in the midst of our suffering, to cry out to God, and to remember God's actions on our behalf. Now, I've just finished six months serving as your interim associate pastor, and I've been so blessed to come to know so many of you. But I have fallen in love with this particular quality that you have as a church. And it's not something you'll find everywhere. You are real. I have been to churches all across North America and Europe in all different denominations and expressions of faith. And Hope Covenant Church, you are the church that restores my hope in Christianity because you are real. So many of you just boldly embrace our motto, no perfect people allowed. Sure, some of you have, you know, this sheen of perfection about you or this glimmer of, oh, I've got life all figured out. But for the most part, so many of you are just honest about your lives. Many of you have openly shared with me and with others what your story is. For some of you, every day is a battle to overcome the temptation to return to drugs or alcohol or pornography. Pastor Dwayne sets a great example as he speaks openly about his years of gambling addiction in the years that followed his son Tyler's death. I know about the loss of your children, the death of your spouses, the loss of your jobs, your homes, your friendships, and even sometimes your self-respect. One friend bravely told me that he's been in a spiritual desert for 10 years. This man 
used to experience God so richly. I wish she could hear his story. And he, he just felt the presence of God in his life. But for the last decade, he's been left in silence, in a barren place, and he doesn't know why. Some of you are bold enough to admit that you're angry with God because he's allowed you to suffer, or that you doubt that God is really good because life is so messy. And for all that honesty, I as a pastor and as your sister in Christ say, thank you. So many Christians deny their suffering, either publicly or privately. They discount their pain by stuffing in it deep into the shadows of their subconscious or hiding it behind masks of contentment and happiness. How many of you have discovered that living this masked life only causes you more pain? We each have a choice about how to live in Christ. We can choose to plaster smiles on our faces and deny the existence of the deep throbbing pain in our hearts because we believe that either <clears throat> undermines the sincerity of our faith or questions the goodness of God. But the alternative is to choose to be real. We can choose to share the fact that our lives hurt, to tell a friend that we feel abandoned, to cry out that we can't take the suffering anymore. We can choose to be honest with each other and with God which we know is not a sin because we have examples of such honesty in Scripture. Psalm 77 is just really one of a hundred biblical examples I could give you of God-fearing, God-loving people who cry out against injustices, suffering, and the seeming absence of God. Listen again to Psalm 77, verses 1 and 2. I cried out to God for help. I cried out for God to hear me. When I was in distress, I sought the Lord. At night, I stretched out untiring hands, and I would not be comforted. Can't you just imagine this man with his arms stretched out so far that his muscles are just straining with every movement? The writer of this particular psalm is Asaph, probably a prominent temple musician, and he lays his feelings bare in his songs. His lyrics say that he groaned, that his heart grew faint, that he was too troubled for words. Does that strike a chord with any of you? Verses 7 through 9 are the crux of his complaint, and I think we should hear him again. Will the Lord reject forever? Will he never show his favor again? Has his unfailing love vanished forever? Has his promise failed for all time? Has God forgotten to be merciful? Has he in anger withheld his compassion? Those are six sharp questions. They took my breath away when I first read them. How many of us, hearing these questions, think that Asaph um, kind of crossed the line with God? Was he too bold? Would you be so bold to question God like that? Now, I admit I am not completely comfortable asking questions like this about my life to God. But working as a hospital chaplain in an intensive care unit has certainly propelled me light years toward bold prayer in 2011. 
But I remember when I was in college, and for the first time in my life, I read through the Old Testament, uh, Old Testament from beginning to end. I was shocked to find such raw, honest speech from faithful people, speech which seems to call God to the carpet. And then I realized, this is a part of my heritage as a Christian. The ancient Israelites are my spiritual ancestors, and they show us that through, uh, through our sacred text, that emotional honesty, this raw lament, it's an acceptable way to express ourselves to God. Crying out was a way of life for God's people. And we can't really fully understand what's going on in Psalm 77 unless we go back farther in Israel's history. We need to remember the story of Exodus. The scene opens with the Israelites as slaves in Egypt, oppressed by harsh taskmasters, the Hebrew men forced into crippling physical labor, the oldest male child of every Israelite family drowned by Pharaoh's decree. This monstrous oppression lasted 430 years. The Israelites were not afraid to talk openly to God about their suffering. Exodus 2 says, The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of the slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Then a little bit later in the chapter, in chapter 3, we see the cries of the Israelites motivate this response from God. Then the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land, into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. As the story goes, God sends Moses to be his spokesman before Pharaoh, and God assures Moses that Pharaoh will let his people go. He says, because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with my outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. Now, these references to God's mighty hand and outstretched arm are all over the Old Testament. These word pictures are really references to God's unmatchable strength and power, which he uses to both defend his people and then to shower them with abundant blessing. Now, hold that thought, because we're going to come back to it in a minute. The epic story of Exodus begins with people suffering and crying out to God. God hears the cries of his people and sends plagues against Egypt, the last of which claim the life of Pharaoh's son. With that death, Pharaoh lets God's people go. Ah, oh, but Pharaoh's pride and anger, you know, they won't let him admit defeat, so he chases after the Israelites. He and his army of mighty chariots pursue God's people until the Israelites are trapped in between the sea and the army. Now, at this point in the story, some of us modern readers might think, big deal. Can't they swim or, you know, bind some sticks together and make a floaty and just get across the ocean? <clears throat> but large bodies of water were no one's friend in those days. In fact, according to the mythology of the time, water was the dwelling place of a great dragon named Leviathan. And water in ancient cultures like Egypt, it was a symbol of chaos. 
So now think of the picture. God's people trapped between an army of chariot-riding soldiers and the murky depths of chaos, which may be hiding a ferocious dragon. And what does God instruct them to do? He says, follow me through the water. God parts the sea by Moses' staff, making a path of dry ground. The people are probably thinking they're about to die anyway, so they just follow Moses. But they make it through safely. And the Egyptian army is crushed behind them as the waves come crashing down. This is the miraculous event that Asaph is remembering in Psalm 77. He cries out like his fearful, oppressed ancestors did hundreds of years before him. Like I said earlier, the Psalms and many other Old Testament books give examples of people crying out to God. For our spiritual ancestors, crying out became what I would call a ritualistic act in times of trouble. It's their first instinct, a deliberate response to suffering, injustice, and persecution. Many of us in this room are going through difficulty. Some of us are just downright relieved that we made it to 2012. We're just hoping that it would be, gosh, just a little bit better than 2011. Well, we've made it to a new year. But where is the guarantee that it's going to be better? Now, I'm going to say something that might make you uncomfortable, and it's going to fly in the face that every... uh, Find the face of everything Joel Osteen has ever taught you. <clears throat> we should expect suffering this year and every year because it's a part of life, especially the Christian life. No one knew that better than Jesus. Remember that Jesus spent much of his time before his death preparing his disciples for the harsh realities of following in his footsteps. He told them point blank. That to follow him meant they would be persecuted, oppressed, ridiculed, and many of them would lose their lives. Suffering is a part of life. And I think we'd endure it better if we just acknowledged that it was real. And then followed our ancestors' example and cry out to God. As a pastor, a counselor, and a hospital chaplain... I spent a lot of time helping people give themselves permission to feel pain, anger, desperation. I try to help them give sound, words, images, sometimes even movement to what they're feeling. And if and when they're ready, to take those things to God. What I've discovered during my ministry is that there's a spiritual corner people often turn when they admit their pain to God. This act often kind of unlocks the jail cell that they've stuffed their emotions into. I remember a time when I was paged to the ICU to care for a woman whose husband had suffered a stroke and was now on life support. When I met her, she just looked broken. She was standing there holding on to the bed rail as though it was the only thing that was keeping her from falling to the floor. With tears just pouring down her face, she told me that just a week ago, They had been playing at the beach with their granddaughters. They had been running around and having the time of their lives, and her husband was acting like a big kid. Across the bed, she looked at me and said, Why? 
Tell me, chaplain, why did this happen? Why did God do this? And my answer was silence. I can't answer the why question. I don't know the answer to that question. But it's the one that I hear most often in people suffering. But the why question is the question that I can absolutely take to God. I prayed with the wife, holding her hand over her husband's body, my left hand clutching his limp one. And I prayed words like Asaph's, God, where are you? I prayed with a fervor and a boldness that is not typical of me. I usually kind of shuffle bashfully toward God. You know, my head bowed and my eyes closed, and I'm praying that my heart is just humble enough that he'll listen. But that day, I marched boldly to the throne of God, my head up, my shoulders back. It was like I was a soldier about to go into battle. And I went up to God, and I just spoke what I heard in this woman's heart. As I prayed, she began weeping and rocking her body over her husband's bed. I don't remember the words of that prayer, but I could feel us crying out. And when I left that room, the circumstances hadn't changed. But the wife seemed a little less broken. She was standing a little bit taller, and her eyes held just a little bit of relief that finally someone had come to give words to the terrible, awful pain in her life. To those of you who are suffering, I have to ask you, have you cried out yet? You're free to. In fact, there's absolutely no cost to crying out. If the Israelites, well, who have a far from stellar reputation for faithfulness and trust in God, if they can cry out to God and not get sucked down into the earth or struck by lightning, well, I think that we then have license to cry out too. We can speak the truth about our suffering. The people who've cried out before us, they're just too numerous to list. But I'll name a few. Moses, Elijah, the psalmists, Isaiah, Amos, Rebecca, the judges of Israel, Elisha, Job, and the list goes on. If we trust this patterned witness of scripture, then we should give ourselves permission to cry out to God. Set yourselves free from the emotional prison you've created and cry out. For some of you, that's difficult. But for others, some people are really good at this. (laughs) Some of us have no problem being honest about our pain, to God or to anyone. Some of us share freely and openly, oh, that we're suffering. In fact, we cry out so often, publicly, privately, anywhere we go, well, that we're labeled as complainers or emotionally needy, and our pain is discounted by others. Here's the problem. It's easy to get stuck in lament. Once we get used to crying out, we discover that it feels so good to give sound and words to what's going on in here. Some of us have cried out to God, but our circumstances haven't changed. Our pain is still with us. And so we just keep doing it. So many of us get stuck here. But there is more for us in suffering than lament and crying out. So let's return to the biblical witness to see what we can do next. 
Psalm 77 shows through Asaph that uh, he, he rails into the silence and the seeming abandonment of God, but he doesn't get stuck in lament. The tune of his song changes about halfway through. After he questions God's integrity with those six sharp questions, Asaph says in verses 10 to 12, Then I thought, there it is, Then I thought, to this I will appeal. The years when the Most High stretched out his right hand. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your miracles of long ago. I will consider all your works and meditate on all your mighty deeds. The remaining verses of the song allude to the Israelites' flee from Egypt and their scary walk through the Red Sea. Rather than get stuck crying out and questioning the goodness of God, Asaph turns his thoughts to something else, remembering. In fact, Asaph is really just following God's example from the Exodus story. On the screen, you'll see again the words of Exodus 2, where it says, God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Israel. Every time God's people cried out, the overwhelming witness of the Old Testament is that first God hears his people. Second, the Bible shows us that God remembers his people. Now, we need to pause here because I have to clarify something very important. When we hear the phrase, God remembered his people, what does our brain say? That God forgot his people. See, our brains are wired with English language and meaning and verbal tenses, and we rely on things like antonyms and synonyms to make meaning of the language that we have. In English, to remember is something merely cognitive, the ability of our brains to recall some information. That's not what's going on in Hebrew. The Hebrew verb zahar, translated here as remember, does not indicate in any way, shape, or form that God forgot his people, that he forgot anything. As I've dug and sniffed around the Old Testament, the many places that this verb appears, and it appears everywhere, It's clear from the context that when God remembers his people, he acts. You could almost exchange the phrase for God remembered his people with, God did something great. He did something epic. He did something miraculous. The phrase God remembered his people, it's a verbal flag. You know, picture the Indy 500 waving an inch from your face. This phrase is the flag of God's faithfulness. It's no surprise to me that Asaph uses this verb in his song. To move out of the lament of his circumstances, he remembers God's mighty acts on behalf of the people. Asaph seems to be doing his best to follow God's example of faithfulness. And here, people of hope, is one of the keys to the Christian life. One of the ways which we're able to survive the inevitable suffering in our corrupt, sinful world. We, like Asaph and many other biblical ancestors, are to remember God's mighty acts on our behalf. That is how we move beyond lament. Now, we don't know what kind of suffering Asaph went through. Whether he was singing about personal or corporate suffering, but his song indicates that the suffering was enormous. Even though he felt abandoned, Asaph remembers what God did for his people. Listen to verses 16 to 18 again. The waters saw you, God. The waters saw you and writhed. 
The very depths were convulsed. The clouds poured down water. The heavens resounded with thunder. Your arrows flashed back and forth. Your thunder was heard in the whirlwind. Your lightning lit up the world. The earth trembled and quaked. Asaph did not live in the time of God's deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt, but he'd probably heard the story a hundred times. He knew that no murky sea, no sea dragon, no fearsome army was a match for the God that created the heavens and earth. The God that harnesses lightning to use like arrows in battle. The mighty right hand of God saved the people of Israel from enemies on both sides. God led his people through one powerful threat, the sea, and then used that threat to crush the other one, the Egyptian army. The strength of God makes every other power laughable. And that mighty, overcoming, redeeming God is the one that Asaph remembers in his present struggles. That is the God that Asaph worships in the middle of his song as he sings, Your ways, O God, are holy. What God is as great as our God? You are the God who performs miracles. You display your power among the peoples. With your mighty arm, you redeemed your people, the descendants of Jacob and Joseph. Strangely, Asaph doesn't write any verses about what God does for him personally. He doesn't finish the psalm with this nice lyrical bow that tells us what happens. All we hear is Asaph remembering the miracles of God that he did on behalf of his ancestors. His memory of God's intercession transforms his raw lament into a song of hope. So first we acknowledge suffering. Then we cry out to God. And our next step is to remember what God has done for us. How many of us are good at that? If you're anything like me, in your mind, you've got a library. And this library is full of dusty tomes, that you've recorded about the sufferings of your life. When I'm suffering, the last thing that I have the energy or will to think about is things in the past. All I can see, hear, taste, feel, all of it is the pain. It is nearly impossible to remember what God has done for me. I want to illustrate this for you. I brought my library. <clears throat> well, you know, my life's not all suffering. There's some really great things about my life, so I want to start there. I don't know if you all over here can see this. I'm going to move. So I'm going to start with something that is just fundamental to the joy of my life, and that's my family. Some of them are here today. So that's my first chapter, my first major book. Then, oh, man, this one is about the friendships I've had. I have lived all over North America, and I just have the most amazing friendships. My education. I am so thankful for what I've learned, not just in school, grad school, you know, but in life, the things that God has taught me. This one, I like the color. This one is um, spiritual gifts and talents, the things, the ways that God has made me unique, the things that God has asked me to do on his behalf. That's pretty awesome. Then there's this one. 
this one is really foundational to everything. This one is my faith in Jesus Christ. This one is the overwhelming sense of amazingness that God has chosen to adopt me as part of his family. But, you know, really the library, I'm a big reader. I'm also a writer, so it gets bigger. Hold on. Okay. Okay. So, you know, I'll share some of my pain with you. Um, this one's about, this goes way back into like late elementary school and middle school where I was bullied by these kids and no one back then talked about bullying. So I felt very alone when that was going on. Then these are the deaths in my life of friends, grandparents, um, my mother's best friend from cancer, uh, my friend Alex's suicide. This is uh, the book that I commemorate, the herniated disc that I had. For a year, I was in so much pain I couldn't sit, which meant I couldn't drive for more than 20 minutes. Then there was a time in grad school where I was um, ill, but no, no one could diagnose me, and I just could feel my body shutting down. But I had no idea what was going on, and I just felt completely lost. This is a really heavy one. This is the abuse that I suffered in a workplace. This is um, a story about injustice in the place where I worked in Pennsylvania that caused me to resign from my job. So um, hold on, there's more. Okay. Okay. Um, so when I resigned from my job, I, I thought it wouldn't take long to get another one. Um, but it did. Unemployment. Um, and then with unemployment, you know, I blew through my savings living very frugally. Um, and then there was the inevitable financial crunch where you think, how in the world am I going to do this? You know, and then we all have a couple unspoken ones that are just really too painful to talk about in public. You see what just happened? It is entirely too easy to remember the bad things in life. Somehow, even though that good is really good, the pain can seem stronger than the joy. Does this happen for you? Do your complaints your suffering, your pain, do they rise higher than the joy? If Asaph or Moses or Elijah or any of those people in the Old Testament were here today, they'd urge us to take a look at our stacks again. They'd say, don't just look at your pain. Don't just look at your suffering. Look into your suffering. Look very closely. They'd ask, Corey, How did God remember you in the midst of your suffering? What did he do on your behalf? And if I, you know, took the time to really look and remember, meditate, as Asaph says, well, I'd have to do a little restacking. You know, um, where's that one? Oh, here we go. Okay, so the herniated disc. It's really hard to remain sane when you're in intense pain all day. To just get through the day, 
but I really did. Whether it was through medical treatment, pain management, prayer, meditation, God met me there. And I no longer have pain. I'm healed from that. Certainly God was a part of that. So I really have to restack it over here. You know, there's other things. I mean, you know, some of these, I could tell you stories. And so on and so on. Not all of them get restacked because there's still lots of question marks. What do the stacks of your life look like? Does your suffering often outstack your joy? Okay. Then cry out to God and remember. Think about and recognize the ways that God delivered you, consoled you, helped you, and guided you through the thorny places of your life. Cling to those memories, but not just as thoughts. I encourage you, like Israel did, to make remembering God's faithfulness something as concrete as this podium. In 1 Samuel 7, there's this great story about the Philistine army who was going to kill the Israelites. And they were just panicked because they were no match from this army. So Samuel and the people cried out to God, and God, through thunder, caused this amazing panic in this great army. And then Israel took advantage of their chaos and overcame them. Now, Samuel, wisely, put up a stone, it was probably ginormous stone, I'm thinking Stonehenge, and he named it Ebenezer, which means, thus far the Lord has helped us. Raising commemorative stones and pillars, that was common for the people of Israel. They also had all kinds of symbolic events to deliberately remember God's actions on their behalf. Their yearly feasts and festivals, those commemorate different deliverances in their history. They refrained from work on the Sabbath to remember what God did in creation. They ate bread made without yeast for a week every year to remember how God brought them out of Egypt. I think there's plenty of room for us to get serious about remembering what God has done for us, both individually and corporately. To endure the difficulty of our lives, we could renew Israel's practice of remembrance. I encourage you today, go home, sit down, brainstorm, journal, or have coffee with a friend like I like to do, and examine the ways that God was with you in your suffering. It may take some really hard work and long hours of thinking. As Asaph says in verse 19, it's my favorite one, God led his people through the sea, but his footprints were not seen. We need to pray that God would give us the eyes to see his actions in our lives. But I want us to go beyond this cognitive remembering to action. I encourage you to create or enact symbols of God's faithfulness in your life. If you're an artist, paint, sculpt, create, craft, do something that's visible and then display it prominently in your home. If you're a writer, put your story on paper and bind it. There's places online that will do this for you so that you can read your story again and again and again. If you love music, make a mix CD or write an album of songs that mark God's presence in your suffering. If you're a gardener, this is my favorite one. If you're a gardener, 
plant commemorative fruit trees in your yard so that when they bloom and fruit every year, you will have a visible and edible harvest of God's work in your life. If you love to socialize like Sherry Cross, have a special party on a significant spiritual anniversary and share your story with your friends so that you and they will be encouraged. Do all of this so you can endure the suffering you will face. And like Asaph, turn your lament into a song in the God of the outstretched arm. I hope that these encouragements don't seem like trite responses to very real pain and suffering. I, I sincerely wish that I could change all of your pain and have you only experience joy. But that's the kingdom we're waiting for. All I have to offer you is the wisdom of the word of God, which shows us that we can cry out to God. Asaph and other ancestors show us to move from lament to hope by remembering what God has done for us. But because we're a body, I can cling not only to what God has done for me, I can hold on to what God has done for you, or for us, or for Christians throughout history. When we approach our suffering this way, suddenly things are stacked in our favor. For me, some of the most consoling and encouraging words are from John 16.33 when Jesus says, In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so he has. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus overcame this world dominated by sin, fear, pain, oppression, death, you name it, he did it. When Jesus conquered suffering and death, he opened up God's spiritual family to include people like you and me. As God's people, we can endure suffering, knowing that our battles have been won, past, present, and future, by the Son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father. Whatever your life looks or feels like, whatever pain is overwhelming you, I urge you to claim and remember the truth that Jesus has overcome. Before he left earth, Jesus did something really strange. He inaugurated a new symbolic act for his people. It was an act of remembrance. It was communion. While sharing an ordinary meal with his disciples, Jesus took the usual unleavened bread. Remember what that recalls. He broke it apart. He passed it around the table and he says, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then a little bit later, he poured out the wine and he declared it the new covenant in my blood to be drank whenever disciples gathered in remembrance of Jesus. He was alluding, of course, to his coming death on a cross when he would take away the sins of the world. Every month, When we come to this communion table, we remember, we declare, we celebrate that Jesus won the victory for us past, present, and future. This is a profound truth. The most wonderful joy that we could ever know 
But I don't say this to placate you or to tie my sermon up into a nice little bow. I'm not trying to push aside our suffering so that we can leave this church today, you know, with a false sense of comfort. Our suffering is real and it is painful. For some of us, God seems distant, gone. Where is our relief? Where are the miracles of God to rescue us from trouble? Why has God allowed this to happen? I don't know. I don't have those answers. Like the psalmist, I can't always see God's footprints leading me through suffering. But I am free to cry out to God. People of God, we may never know in this life why. But we can remember. What has God done for you? What has God done for us? Yes, cry out to God and demand that he deliver you. But first and foremost, often, always, ultimately, remember what God has done for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? God, we can't see you. Some of us can't feel you. Some of us can't hear you. And that's a scary place to be. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, feet to walk. Ways to recall what you've done for us in the past. May that give us hope. May that help us keep walking. God, you have done great things for your people for us, for me. We thank you for the things that you've done, your miracles, your mighty deeds, your strong, outstretched, mighty hand and arm that you lead us through suffering. Thank you. Amen.